you'll open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, I'd like to begin reading in verse 45 and read through the end of the chapter. Mark, chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. This is the Word of God. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it that it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. Do you know there's a very close connection between our hearts and our eyes? In fact, we see with our hearts. If you don't believe it, visit the maternity ward of a family that's just had a baby. As a pastor, I've visited many people, and, uh, and the baby will have not been delivered very long, and Jaylen and I will go in and visit, and there's this baby with a cone-shaped head, blotches on its face, screaming uncontrollably, and the mother will hold the baby out and say, Pastor, isn't my baby beautiful? Well, I take a big gulp, and as I'm swallowing, I'm thinking, God, if there's ever a time you can forgive me for lying, this will be it. And I can sense my wife's thoughts coming into my mind, William, be nice. And I'll say, it is such a lovely baby. And then I'm thinking in my heart, oh God, forgive me. You know, a baby, they've just been through the most arduous experience it will ever know until the day it dies. And, and now we're calling it beautiful Well, nevertheless, uh, we see with our eyes, every parent looks at their little baby and says, this is the most beautiful baby in the world. If you don't believe it, I can think back, it's been a number of years ago now, when the country music star Lyle Lovett married Julia Roberts. I remember when the news broke. I can remember hearing my wife and my daughter say, Oh my, why in the world would she marry him? Well, I kind of thought that myself, taking a good look at Lyle Lovett, but you know, you see with your heart. I tell people sometimes when they're, when they're, when they're dating, 
one or the other, a, a young man or young lady will come to me and say, you know, I'm just not very attracted to them. And I said, that's because you're looking at them with your eyes. It's better to get to know people and spend some time around them and, and, and become friends with them and, and be engaged in, in, uh, in group activities and ministry together. And what you will find is often your heart changes your vision and you begin to see them differently. Well, the story we're about to study this morning is, is all about the heart. And the disciples are described as having a hard heart. It's odd because in the Gospel of Mark, the only two groups of people ever described as being hard-hearted are the religious leaders and the disciples. And the disciples have hard hearts, and because their hearts are hard, when they look at particular episodes, scenes, events in the life and ministry of Jesus, they don't see them for what they really are. In fact, At the very end of our passage this morning that we just finished reading, they're described as having hard hearts. They had seen Jesus perform an unbelievable miracle, feeding literally thousands of people with just a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish, but they didn't grasp what actually transpired because their hearts were hard. Well, I want to speak with you this morning on the, on the topic, hard hearts sink ships. It's a story that we're very familiar with. Matthew, Mark, and John all describe Jesus walking on the water. But it's, it's a very instructive episode. It's an episode, an event in the life and ministry of Jesus that deserves the utmost consideration and reflection. I want you to notice first with me, that we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus sends us into a storm. Don't be surprised if Jesus sends you into a storm. Look at the opening verses. Mark writes, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Notice the word immediately. Again, it's one of Mark's favorite words. He uses it 41 times in this gospel, he no sooner had fed the multitudes, they gathered up all of the leftovers and put them in 12 baskets till he immediately forces the disciples to get into the boat. Notice the word Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Uh, This was a spectacular moment as far as they were concerned. This is what they signed up for. Jesus feeding multitudes of people and the people beginning to to have a mindset, this might be the Messiah, this very possibly is the Messiah. In fact, John tells us in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, therefore when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. You see, the the masses saw the miracle and they thought, 
This is the Messiah that's going to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to throw off the yoke of Roman domination. He's going to establish an earthly kingdom, and it's going to be situated in Jerusalem. And the disciples must have been thinking along similar lines. That is, when you see this enormous number of people, 5,000 men, maybe 12, 14, 15,000 people that have been fed miraculously, you're thinking, this is what it's all about. This is what I've signed up for. Look at this. We're associated with the man that everybody is wanting to follow. They're wanting to put him on an earthly throne. This is magnificent. But they were looking through the eyes of their heart and not the eyes of God's heart. Indeed, he was a Messiah. God God had sent him to be a Savior and Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that they perceived him to be. So it says in verse 45, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, and he sends them on to Bethsaida while he sends the crowd away. And then in verse 46, he goes up to a mountain to pray. Only three times in Mark's gospel is Jesus ever described as praying. Now, we know that he prayed at other, uh, other times because in Luke's gospel, at every important moment in Jesus' life, he's described as praying. But in Mark's gospel, there are only three occurrences. We've already studied one of those. Turn back to chapter 1 with me. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 35... Mark writes, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Now, we need to be reminded of what preceded that early morning prayer time. The previous day was the Sabbath. Jesus began the Sabbath day teaching in the synagogue, and he cast out a demon. He leaves the synagogue and he immediately goes to the home of Simon Peter and he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. After the sun has set and a new day has begun, because in in first century Jewish context, the day began at 6 p.m., the Sabbath ended at 6 p.m. on Saturday night. So at 6 p.m. they begin to bring to him all who are sick and demon-possessed in the village of Capernaum. And he begins healing the sick and casting out uh, demons. Then after that long, arduous day, he gets up very early the next morning and he spends time in prayer. Peter and the large crowds, they're looking for him. And notice in in verse 37, they found him and... Peter said to him, everybody's looking for you. We can set up shop. Everybody's coming. They want to see you. They want to hear you. They want to touch you. Uh, We've got a large gathering of people. This is exactly what we've been looking for. It's the opportunity that we want. And then Jesus says in verse 38, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. It's counterintuitive. It goes against every fabric of our being. The last thing you want to do is leave an enormous crowd and begin an itinerant ministry. 
But that's exactly what Jesus does after spending the early morning hours in prayer. What's he praying about? He's praying about what he should do. Should he stay or go? Should he shut up shop right there in Capernaum or should he go throughout Galilee preaching and teaching? So he's seeking the Father's will. He's seeking to determine what God would have him do. And immediately at the conclusion of his prayer time, he says, I've been called to other villages and places and and we must go there. The second occurrence is here in chapter 6. But the last occurrence, we won't turn there, is in chapter 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we actually hear Jesus pray, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. And so he's asking if there's any other way, if there's any other possibility of bringing redemption to the world, let's do it that way. And that's a prayer that God can't answer affirmatively. That's something that's already been, been written into the fabric of Scripture. And the cross is Jesus' inevitable destiny. But again, it's about which path will he take. The same is true right here in chapter 6. You see, in each of these three passages, there are overtones of spiritual conflict and warfare. John Piper says that prayer is war. And until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. You see, in each of these occurrences, they are at a strategic, monumental moment in the ministry of Jesus. Which way will he go? What will he do? What path will he follow? In the first instance, he sends him out on a tour of Galilee on an itinerant time of ministry. What about right here? He's got 12, 14, 15,000 people ready to rise up and call him Messiah. What will he do? He sends them away and he goes up on the mountain to pray. You see, what Mark's wanting to communicate to us is this. At the, at the crucial turning point of life, Jesus, of, of life and ministry, Jesus prayed. And at our crucial turning points in life, we should pray. What Jesus was teaching his disciples by sending them away is that he was looking for converts, not a crowd. It's easy to determine success by numbers. It's easy to base your ministry and your impact solely on the number of people that gather together, but that's a dangerous metric and rubric to follow. Because God often calls us to lonely places to minister to just a few people and in the kind of mindset that permeates a denomination like ours where nickels and noses are what matter most, we could lead a person to believe if you're in the lonely place, the hard place, the small place, your ministry is less effective and less significant than those that are ministering to large crowds. But notice what Jesus did. He sent the crowds away. There are two things I want you to notice in these opening two verses. The first one is this, the absolute necessity of prayer. 
If you're going to have a life that's guided by God, you're going to have to spend time in prayer. If you're going to be a parent who's, who's shepherding of their children is going to be guided by God, you've got to spend time in prayer. Because you can raise a moral child, but moral children go to hell. Only converted people go to heaven. So you can catechize them. What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You can go through the scripture memory process with them. You can can have a a daily regimen of Bible reading with them. But if you don't cry out to God for the heart to be converted, you can raise a person into a moral state, but not a converted state. Prayer is absolutely essential to have God's hand on your life. And that's what we need. But the second thing I want you to notice is how Jesus sends them into an inevitable storm. The inevitability of storms, and sometimes God sends us into these storms. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in storms because of our foolish and sinful choices. We just ignore common sense. Uh, we, We ignore wise counsel. We determine I'm going to do it because I, because I want to do it, and we have wise counsel not to do it. And then when the bottom falls out, we expect God to rescue us, but we're there by our own choosing, not God's leading. And God will usually allow us to languish there for quite some time to learn the lesson of making foolish and sinful choices. But other times we find ourselves in a storm and we are right in the center of God's will. We're right where God wants us to be because that's where God can teach us best. He can teach us about himself and who he is and that's what they should have learned from this, from this storm that they were entering into And we can learn something about ourselves by the way that we respond to life's storms. James, who was was the half-brother of Jesus, put it like this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. When Jesus pushed that boat out into the Sea of Galilee, he knew exactly where he was sending them. He was sending them into a tumultuous storm so that they could learn something about who he was and something about who they were. Don't be surprised if Jesus sends you into a storm. Second, don't be surprised when Jesus comes to you in your storms. Jesus is described as walking on the water. We're not surprised to see them on the Sea of Galilee in a storm because we're reminded of an earlier passage where they had experienced a a storm and Jesus calmed the storm while, while being in the boat with them. This time they're in the boat and he's walking on the sea. You get the idea in verses 47 and 48 that the Jesus, as he's on the mountain praying, sees what's going on 
in the boat. It's near Passover season, so there's very likely a a rather full moon. The Sea of Galilee is in a basin. It's 600 feet below sea level, high hills all around. Jesus is up on one of those hills looking down. The moon is illuminating the storm that's taking place on on the sea. He sees them straining at the oars, and he's praying for them. And he's preparing to come to them. In fact, he doesn't come until sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 and 6, so they have been out on that sea for quite some time. They are exhausted. And when they look out onto the sea, they see a figure approaching them, and they are terrified. They're terrified because the last thing they expect to see on the Sea of Galilee is a person walking on the water. Who could blame them? We would have been frightened. We would have probably had had thought that he was a ghost. But but is Jesus walking on the water? And, And Mark makes the most interesting comment. Uh, Look with me in in verse 48. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. That's an odd saying. It's difficult to know what to do with. Some scholars Some scholars interpreted to me that Jesus didn't intend to to get into the boat with them. That he was just going to walk on by. He was just going to meet them on the other other side. He was just taking the shortcut by by walking on the sea rather than by walking on land around the Sea of Galilee. And other scholars sometimes say, well, you know, he was just going to pass them by if they didn't invite him into the boat. But you have to wonder, is, is that really what Mark is is intending to communicate. In fact, the imagery behind that little phrase, that, that, that little phrase that he was intending to pass by is an idea that's found in the Old Testament related to theophanies. A theophany is where God would appear to his people. He would manifest his presence to his people. Like with Moses in the burning bush, God wasn't the burning bush, but God was manifesting his presence, his glory and the reality of his presence to Moses in that burning bush. And he spoke to Moses from the burning bush. That little phrase is intended to teach us that Jesus Christ is God and he is manifesting his glory and his splendor to those disciples on the midst of the Sea of Galilee. You say, Pastor, where do you get that from? Well, Let me direct your attention to Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 23. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Moses wants to see God. He wants to see God's glory. But God said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, 
and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory, now look at this phrase, is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you will not see. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by. So we go back to that thought, and the idea that Mark is wanting to communicate is this is a manifestation of God incarnate. This is a demonstration that Jesus Christ is God. We believe that he actually walked on the water because that's what the Bible says. He didn't walk beside the Sea of Galilee like some scholars try to insinuate. He actually walked on the Sea of Galilee. He did what no human being could possibly do, and that is walk on the water. Now, the disciples responded in fear, just like we would have responded, because they didn't anticipate or expect to see him walking on the water. But just as he always seems to do, he speaks just the right words at just the right time. Notice what he says in the latter part of verse 50. He spoke with them and said to them, they're overwhelmed with fear. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. He tells them first, take courage, be courageous. And then secondly, he identifies himself. Again, using language reminiscent of how God spoke of himself in the Old Testament. In fact, you could literally render what Jesus said as, take courage, it is I am, do not be afraid. Take courage, it is I am, do not be afraid. That's very much like what God said to Moses from the burning bush. When Moses is instructed by God to go back to the, to the nation of Egypt and lead the children of Israel out, he says, whom shall I say has sent me? And he says, tell them I am who I am. So Jesus identifies himself as the divine I am. In fact, the Old Testament teaches that there's no human being that can control the elements other than God. The psalmist writes these words. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. So in this monumental moment, this once-in-a-lifetime moment, look with me in verse 51. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. 
That's where I want to stop. That's where I want to finish this morning. What should they have learned from the incident of the lows? They should have learned that Jesus is the compassionate shepherd. That Jesus will not allow his people to struggle without his presence. That he's the great Emmanuel, God with us. In the midst of the storm, Jesus is there. When the crowds were hungry, Jesus met their pressing need. When the disciples needed assistance, Jesus came to them, but their heart was hard. And our heart determines what we see. What should they have seen? They should have seen God incarnate. They should have recognized that the one that they follow as rabbi and master and teacher was God himself. But their heart was hard. How had, how had their heart become hard, just like our heart becomes hard? A little bit at a time. Our hearts don't harden overnight. Our hearts harden over time. How does a person who began with a passion and a zeal and a hunger for God find that several years after their conversion, their hearts are a little bit cold. They find themselves indifferent to the things of God. It didn't happen overnight. It happened a little bit at a time. It happened with an excuse here and an excuse there. Well, I don't have time to, I don't have time to go to my life group. I, I, I don't have time to, I don't have time to, to in, my, in my busy schedule, to gather with a small group of, of, of young adults, college students, and study the Bible and pray. I, I just don't have time. My life's too busy. And we begin to make all kinds of excuses. Well, you, you know, it's the reason I, the reason I don't go anymore is, is because of them. It's got everything to do with them. But it, no, it's got everything to do with you. And it has everything to do with me. Because our hearts become hardened when we excuse our sin a little bit at a time. And then when God does great things for us, we don't even recognize it's God. Well, the reason I got this job, my hard work, my good grades. You know, I had to put my spiritual life on the, on the burner. I mean, I had to quit going to, to, going to, to discipleship. I, I, had to, I had to quit doing things that I had been doing, but, but look at the job I've got. And we don't see the hand of God in the good things that happen to us because of our hardened hearts. Well, that's what I want us to think about as we close this morning. Two things. Is your, is your heart soft like the skin of a newborn baby? Or has your heart become hardened and callous over the years? Not so much maybe because of the things you're doing, but because of the things you are not doing. And secondly, where do you look when you've come into a storm? You see, most storms are intended to teach us something about ourselves and something about Jesus. 
But what we often do is we try to find our way out of the storm before we learn the lesson of the storm. Maybe this morning you'd like to talk to someone about your spiritual life. Maybe you're in the midst of a storm and you're not even confident that you know God. We're going to have some folks here at the front. We'd love to invite you. Come forward. We pray for you. Talk with you privately, confidentially about the storm that you're experiencing. Or maybe you're a member of this congregation and as we're singing in just a moment, you would just stop and in the quietness of your heart, you would reflect on the thought, is my heart soft like the skin of a newborn baby? Or has it become hard and callous and virtually impenetrable by the work of the Spirit? If you're looking for a church home, we'd invite you to come down as well. We'd love to talk with you about the process of church membership. I'm going to ask if you'll stand and I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. We're going to sing together. Our worship pastor will lead us. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you today that your word is clear and understandable by a simple people like us. We need your spirit, though, to work in our our hearts so that our, our eyes can see. Work in us in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.